Hello and welcome to the OT Schoolhouse podcast, your source for school-based occupational therapy tips, interviews, and professional development. Now, to get the conversation started, here is your host, Jason Davies. Class is officially in session. Hey there, and welcome to the OT Schoolhouse podcast. My name is Jason Davies, and I am a school-based occupational therapist in Southern California. I am so excited to be here with you today. I am actually really excited today for two reasons. First and foremost, you are about to hear a wonderful conversation between myself and Ushma Sampat, who is a private practice owner up in the Bay Area of California. However, she was a school-based occupational therapist for five years, and she has so much to share with us today. This has honestly been one of the best conversations I have had in a long time, so you will not want to miss this. The second reason that I'm excited is much shorter, and that is just because summer is coming, and I love summer. I completely feel like Olaf right now, the snowman. So um, anyways, we're going to keep this intro pretty short. We're going to dive right into it. Please, please, please listen all the way through. This is an amazing episode. Put your phone in your pocket. You don't need it. Just press play. Let it go. Here is Ushma Sampat. Good morning, Ushma. Welcome to the OT Schoolhouse podcast. How are you doing today? I'm well. Thank you for having me here. I'm excited. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited to have you here as well. I mean, we both have a course for school-based occupational therapists, so I'm excited for for everyone, all the school-based OTs out there to get to know you a little bit further. So that's going to be fun. Thank you. Well, we have several topics that we would like to get into today, but first I want to start off by asking you about your current practice. You own a private practice up in the Bay Area in California, right? Yeah, World of OT serves um, children and their whole world. So we serve families, schools, and other professionals. And we do so through direct services, consults, and an online course, as you mentioned, for fellow OTs who are new to the school system. And so how do you work in the schools through the world of OT? So I work with kids in a in variety of ways. So firstly, because I provide services in the child's natural environment, I'm seeing some of my private kiddos in the school. I also provide consult services to early Head Start and Head Start preschool programs. So that's another way I'm you know, connected with the education system. I thought I actually thought that you contracted with the school directly, but you're actually seeing private kids in the school. Is that did I hear that right? Yeah, that's one. And then the other is also contracted by a private school in the school system. Gotcha. I actually want to dive into that then a little bit is how that works when you have a client that is a private client, but you're asked to go into the school or work with them in the school. What does that look like? Yeah, so it's um, so when I have private kiddos that attend private schools, I work with them just like I would with any child that I was seeing in the public system. Um, I would they don't have an IEP for me to go off, but I'm there because the parents primarily have concerns related to school functioning, and so what I'm doing is doing a combination of push in, pull out, collaboration with the teachers, and kind of the whole realm of things that the child might need in the school. So so how does that work as far as the school side of it? Does the school welcome you in with open arms? Or um, is this a private school or a public school? How does that work? Yeah, so it's because it's a private school. It's worked kind of 
the teachers are glad to have me as a resource and they're happy, you know, there's one additional brain to support them. But in private school, it does look, I mean, in public schools, it will look different. So they don't allow you to be a private practitioner, come into a public school and provide services. So with some of the families that I work with, when they are attending public schools, what I would do is collaborate with the team, collaborate with the teachers as an external OT, but not really providing services for the child in there. Gotcha. So now I want to I want to continue on this because this is very interesting to me. When you go into the private school, you're going on campus. Are you going into the into the kid's actual classroom? Are they pulling out the kid for you to work with them in another room? Or what does that look like? It's both. So, you know, there are times when my sessions are actually pushing in. So obviously things are very different. Oh, We're yeah. recording in the COVID world. <laughs> and uh, for right now, I'm not seeing any of my private kiddos in their school. But I still do provide services to a private school where I go in person because I'm the only OT providing services for all the kiddos at that private school that's contracted me. Um, going back to what the services would look like for my private kiddo in the school. Typically, I will push in. I'll see what the teachers are doing. You know, I, I get a better idea. It's more like an observation, some amount of time to observe, see work samples, touch base with the teacher, mm-hmm. probably pull the child out, depending on what I have planned and what my goal is for the session. I might push in or pull out the child in a separate space. It might be in the playground. It might be in a separate room. It might be in a library. It might be anywhere in the school where I could really, you know, work um, very much like how we do it in public schools. And then the 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 reason I like the approach, even if I had to pull the child out of their classroom, uh, but provide services in the school is because I get so many more touch points with the teachers um, and able to collaborate with the team where if I was only providing services in the child's home or their natural environment, which was somewhere else, but the pain points were really coming from the school, I would be missing a whole world out there. Yeah, absolutely. For these kids, do you typically also see them at home or is it kind of a one or the other? It, it, it's a combination. It is, you know, I, I will go. So World of OT just provides services wherever the child needs it. Yeah. I will go, you know, it, it could be a piano class. It could be a gymnastic class. It could be in the home. It could be in the school. It's in a local park. It will really be anywhere that I could support the team. I could support the parents and I could support the child. I really love that. Like so often I drive past like a karate studio or um, like you're talking a gymnasium or something. I just like think to myself, what if I could go to the owner of that gym and be like, hey, I'm an occupational therapist. How can I support you? So I love that you're doing that. Yeah, I've literally I have a music studio next door and I've actually walked in and I said, hey, I'm an OT. And they're like, what is that? So first win (laughs) is that I was able to educate somebody about what an OT is and how I could be a resource, whether it was me or somebody else. But then even understanding they actually had a child that had a missing finger and was trying to play multiple missing fingers and was learning to play the piano or something. And they said, this is perfect. We need you. And so it was just me going out there being like, how can I be of support to the community? And there was actually a need. and was. It was just amazing. That is awesome. So I'm going to put you on the spot here just a little bit, not too much, but 
where is the most interesting place you have gone to treat a child or or anyone? I want to say the gymnastics class. Gymnastics? Yeah, because it, it was so fun to just see the amount of motor planning. Obviously, the gymnastic coach, like, they know everything about gymnastics, but they haven't really figured out the child's difference of learning. And they've not figured that the child's not doing it because of the motor learning challenges or the ca- coordination challenges. You're expecting something that the child hasn't, doesn't have the capability of mastering at this moment. And we need to take a step back. Just being able to make them see it from that different lens was just so powerful and rewarding for them and for me. That is awesome. That The last like five minutes of this podcast, we, we had no idea we were going to talk about that today, but I love it. Thank you so much for sharing that. Absolutely. So let's go ahead and actually move on. Our first topic kind of comes out of what you and I were talking about as we were kind of planning. And you shared with me some of the inherent difficulties that you had to overcome as a therapist trained outside of the United States. And that's where I want to go now. Let's start with a little bit about your training as an OT outside of the States, though, so then we can transition back in here. Where did that take place? Where were you trained as an occupational therapist initially? Yeah. So I was born and I grew up in Bombay, India. And I complete my bachelor's in occupational therapy at Manipal University, which is Karnataka, a different state in India. It was a four and a half year program. And the fun part about my education was that our institute was also a hospital and had clinics attached to it, all within the same campus. So universities like for OT are not very common in India. It's typically universities look like buildings and that's your university. But I was fortunate enough to actually go to a university that had medical programs, allied health programs, um, engineering, architecture, like literally everything. It was actually an institute. It was actually a university. Um, So coming back to, you know, having a hospital and clinic attached to, um, you know, on the same campus was was amazing because from the very first day of OT school, we were hands on in the field, initially observing, helping our seniors in treatment, slowly providing services under supervision, to finally having juniors under us that we were training along the way. So, I mean, it was it was very different from what it would have been here, um, but I'm very thankful that I did get so much hands-on experience as part of my curriculum. Yeah, because here you get a lot of the theory, you know, two years of theory, and then you go out and do some of your field work and get that hands-on experience. But it sounds like you from day one, you were in there. We were we were in it. <laughs> <laughs> Initially, it was like cleaning up. And then it was giving stuff to the seniors that were providing. But you're always looking, you're thinking, you've been, you know, your seniors or the teachers who are providing therapy are actually asking you questions along the way to actually apply what you've been learning. So you are doing the practicals and the theory in parallel all the time. Wow. I'm sure that was difficult, but also very beneficial. To, to very kind of beneficial. Learn. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And so then was your first job as an occupational therapist in India or did you move here prior to that? No, I moved here. So it, it, it was a double-edged ward. And I think I... I am fortunate that I didn't work a lot in India. So besides, you know, my four years of curriculum where I did have practicals along with six months of internship, other than that, I didn't have a real job. 
Um, and it, the reason I say it was a blessing in disguise is because I had so much unlearning to do and relearning to do. Interesting. In preparation for not only my NBCOT, but being an OT practitioner in the in in the country in the states, it it, it is very different. Yeah, and we're going to dive into that transition in just a minute. But I want to take a step back while we're on the topic of of your home country, and that is to ask you a little bit about education in India. How is the education system there? Mostly public education. I know you work in private education right now, but how is public education different there from it is here? Great question. It is very, very different. And it's interesting that you say public because the government schools in India are not called public schools. They're usually for the financially weaker section of the society or for those who can't afford private schools. But since many people publicly opt for private schools, those private schools are actually called public schools. And the public schools, as we refer to in the States, are called government schools back in India. Ah, okay. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So we have different boards. So federally, like countrywide, we have three boards. So we have, you know, the CBSE board, the ICSE board, and then the NIOS, which is the National Institute of Open Schooling for children, I mean, students that learn differently, which, you know, hasn't might have been there for a long time. I'm not quite sure, but didn't have a lot of awareness or, you know, not many schools actually had that program. And I remember when I was in 10th grade, my school had introduced that board as part of our school as well. Gotcha. And so if you're just driving, walking, riding a bike around India, do you see more of the government schools or the quote unquote public schools? The public. Wow. So private. Yeah. Um, There are fewer public schools like me my friends most people i know um have gone to private schools that is the norm and i'm talking from obviously being in a big city i grew up in bombay so i was in a bigger city in rural areas they probably only had the option of the government schools um but i want to say that a lot more people would have attended private schools wow that's very interesting. All right. Very different from here in the States where you like have to look up where a private school might be as opposed to um, just seeing them everywhere. Wow. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, obviously we have a disparity in India, like economic disparity. The population is too large to even accommodate for in terms of education. Um, so everything gets filled up no matter what you are. You're a public school, a government school, whatever school you're, you're going to get filled up because <laughs> there's just so much. Um, but yeah, like I would have, I don't, my family would have never considered, or it's not even considered. It's like you, you are not entitled to a government school because you're making enough gotcha. to go seek education yourself. Wow. Okay. Well then let's go another layer deep. What about special education? I know in some parts of the country or some parts of the world, special education just doesn't exist. Some places it's up and coming. Here in America, I mean, it's it's been pretty stable for a few decades now. Uh, but what about in India? So special needs, you know, education has only in the last century been seen as a necessity. And obviously with good reason. To dive into the stats a little bit, um, I pulled up some stats from an article by First Crayon. Um, in India, there are 27 million people with special needs in a population of 1.2 billion. This means that 2.2% of our population has special needs. 
According to the census, only 61% of children with special needs aged 5 to 19 attend education institute of any sort. And those are only those we know of. Many cases are not reported due to misconceptions, society fears, and lack of diagnosis. Wow. So majority of the children with special needs don't really receive any formal education in spite of the practice of inclusive education in some schools. This is because the children with disabilities and learning differences are segregated from the mainstream schools and other regular routines and social activities of normal children. So is there any government uh, laws that state schools must provide special education like there is here? So I wasn't even aware about it, but apparently there is. The government of India has put in place an act, Persons with Disability Act of 1995, which provides schooling and services to all children. But for most children or some children with disabilities, these are provided in special schools. So 1995, for anyone out there who doesn't quite recall, it was in the 70s that special education started to kind of pick up here in the States. So um, a 20-year difference between things getting started, but that's great. At least there is something. I know a lot of, a lot of countries don't have anything yet. So that's great. There's definitely a movement. I was chatting with a couple of OTs who have been practicing in the schools oh. in India, and I came to realize that not much has changed in the last 10 years from when I left. Um, Systems and processes for students to receive OT services are actually not present. Uh Though there's been some movement in trying to educate and spread awareness about OT, our roles in the school are very individual to what the aim of that school might be in regards to hiring you. Sometimes OTs are brought on as consultants. Other times OTs are brought on to provide group services to everyone who attends that special day program at that school. Other times, OTs are given free reign to set up their own processes and systems and do as they will. I've actually supported someone in India that was going to start working in a school and had no clue what to do. Mm -hmm. And I actually consulted with her, provided her some of the, you know, some of the things that we follow over here, um, you know, from referral to qualifying for services or not and beyond. Setting up systems, obviously, with modification that would work in India. It was such a rewarding experience to even think about it. Like, it reminded me of all the things that I could have taken for granted. The laws and systems specific to the school, specific to the school system in the U.S., may seem very hard to navigate, you know, as a school-based OT. But it is these very processes and systems that provide us a framework. Yes. For our school-based work, like clarity on our role, our responsibility, how do we proceed? What do we do? Isn't it so much better, Jason, Mm -hmm. to just have these systems to help you navigate instead of running around like a headless chicken, (laughs) even if it is hard in the beginning and requires you to invest in yourself and get the support early on to hit the ground running? Absolutely. I mean, and and that's not just within the schools. That's also just as professionals being licensed, being registered or certificated in the United States. Like, yeah, it's a pain in the butt that we have to take the NBCOT and get that initial registration and then go to your state and get a license. But that's also some A, job security, and uh, B, it's good for the people that we serve. 
it ensures that we know what we're doing. And the same thing in the schools. Yes, it's a pain in the butt that you have to go through a referral process and you have 60 days to get an assessment done, but that also supports the people that we serve. So yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, you actually kind of started to go in this direction. I want to encourage you to go a little bit more. Is talking about the difference between occupational therapy here versus occupational therapy in India. Is it very similar or, and not just school-based, but just in general, is occupational therapy similar, different, or how is it, what direction is it going? Oh, great question. Jason, you're so good at this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Both occupations and the idea and importance given to independence are very different in India when compared to the States. The influence of culture is tremendous and, you know, it's often, unfortunately, overlooked. In India, we have a huge economic disparity. On one hand, we have people who afford to hire help for everything. And on the other spectrum, we have those who don't even have the financial means for the basic necessities like home, food, medical expense, leave alone therapy for quality of life. Of course, there are exceptions and people that we see the There are people who see the need for independence, but the attitude in the first group, which is those that can afford therapy, is largely that I don't want to trouble my loved one. And if I can afford it, I will give my family, my parent, the best care by hiring someone who can help them so that they don't have to go through the pain of doing things themselves. Obviously, the attitude also changes based on the age of the loved one, Mm -hmm. right? So there's definitely been more awareness and services being accessed for pediatrics as compared to adults. And one of the most obvious reasons, as I was thinking about this that comes out, is India is a very populated country, and there's only room for so much. So many schools, so many colleges, so many university admissions, and so many jobs. You have to do well, and you have to ace to move on to the next thing. There's constant pressure to do better. Otherwise, someone else is going to take your place. So parents are innately wanting their kids to be the best. And if that means going to therapy, so be it. Wow. And with occupational therapy, I think you were kind of telling me that like no one, correct me if I'm wrong, but very few people know what occupational therapy is there. I mean, very few people know what it is here either. But I mean, do you see OT clinics even around in India or what does it look like there on the ground? Yeah, yeah. Um, Clinics have definitely started popping up. There are a lot of OTs that have actually done education masters abroad and gone back to India to start clinics and things. So I, there are private practitioners, but obviously what we do and the value we provide, the role we play in families or lives of children depend on what the families I mean even over here we do that but over there it's more like a private OT might also just be a school OT because the parents are thinking so much about the need to be educationally moving forward like play might not be as important to a parent ADL maybe a maid might be able to help with or I can help with till I die as a parent, uh-huh. right? Like all those things might not be there yet. So the role of OT just automatically might have become more educationally driven gotcha. or medically based, yeah. if not educationally driven. Gotcha. All right. Great. Well, I want to kind of now transition to our next 
section or part of the podcast where we're talking about the transition. Um, when did you and your family decide to to move then over to your, San Francisco, right? Yeah, Bay Area. So I was initially in Mountain View and then we've been in San Francisco. So it's all been Bay Area. My husband was already living in the U.S., so he had come to the States to do his undergrad, and then he did his master's, and he had just about got his first job when we got married. And I moved from India to the Bay Area to be with him after we got married. Gotcha. And so what was that move like? Were there any amazing experiences or potentially terrible experiences that really stick out in your mind? I think I'm not going to say amazing or terrible because I am who I am today because Uh of all the experiences that I have lived in the past. But I will say, just to think about and to give you a background of what this move might have been like in my head, I graduated from OT school end of Feb. I got married in the beginning of March and I moved to the States end of March, all of the same year. Wow. So it was definitely a lot to process in a very short time. And I was not, I'm not even sure if I processed all of it then. I was 23 years old, leaving behind every human I knew on the planet, my friends and family to start a new life with my spouse in a new country. I did have some extended family in the States, but these are people I've probably never met before. So they were related, like yeah. somebody, 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 but I didn't know them. So it was basically like starting life from scratch. I just Obviously, got th- my husband. Sorry, I was just going to say I just got the idea. I don't know if you've ever done a DNA test, but I can just imagine like going through your twenty three and Me test and just like finding a random third cousin on there and just saying, "Hey, hey, I'm going to come and live by you. What's going on?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it it was just a lot to process and to think of. It was a big move. I, you know, it was a life changing event. Yeah. I was. And obviously my husband, I mean, the only person I knew then was my husband and he wasn't available to sit and hang out with me. It was not like we were on a long extended honeymoon. He had to provide for the family. He had to work long hours. Mm. It was lonely for sure. Professionally also, you know, to think that that was personally and to think about professionally. It was challenging because my husband and all his friends were in Bay Area. So no guesses there, but most people are engineers. Can you imagine not knowing a single other OT in the entire country you live in? Oh, my. Last but not the least, in addition to all of these mixes, we have visa challenges. I volunteered as an OT for three years before being able to get a job as an OT. What? Because I was on a dependent visa. Luckily, visa laws changed after those three years. So we have to go through a lottery system to even get a visa. and. The year I went through the lottery system, laws changed. And as a dependent of a skilled worker, which was my husband, I was now allowed to get an EAD, which was Employment Authorization Document. That enabled me to start my private practice, a benefit that my husband still doesn't have to this day because he is an H-1B visa holder. So he can only have one job and work for somebody. 40 hours a week, not even part-time, no matter what situation you're in. And if you lose your job, I believe you have about 60 days or 90 days to find another job or leave the country. Wow. He's been here for 15 years and he's still in that. So for anyone listening out there real quick, you can't see my face. Ushma can see my face and I'm just like in disbelief here real quick. Um, Ushma, I want to stop you real quick because there's a lot to unpack there. 
you had to work as a volunteer for three years before you could, before basically, and it wasn't even because it was just three years, it's because laws changed, but you had to volunteer. Were you volunteering as an OT? Yeah, because I couldn't earn. So my visa situation did not allow me to earn money. And so I was, you know, I had skills. I had professional goals. Thankfully, I was in a situation that I did not need to be a provider for my family. And I could actually invest money by, in in regards of money, because I was traveling to the job, investing all the time there. And driving back, doing continuing education, learning and growing because I was at least hitting my professional goals, but I could not earn. Wow. So what kind of OT job were you doing at that point? Or So I was at, I was at a private, I mean, obviously, and you know, how many people will really hire you? You, you are an OT, but you are not allowed to work, right? Like, how are you going to explain that I'm a qualified OT allowed to be an OT, but not allowed to earn? And then actually have somebody hire you. Um, so I was working at a private school and I was working with um, a couple of private families, no payment, just supporting them. Wow, that's so interesting. And then, so now this kind of goes into the next area of the transition. What about NBCOT? I mean, most of us, most school-based OTs, most OTs listening to the, to this podcast, um, shout out to everyone who's outside of the United States. I know there's several of you, but if you're in the United States, you went through the process here. You got your bachelor's, you got your master's, maybe you did your OTD, you took the MBCOT, you got registered, you got licensed, and you're ready to practice. What was that like for you? We have an added layer, even over there. So... We, and by we, I mean internationally educated OTs, can sit the boards, to be able to sit the boards, have to have an additional process completed, which is called the OTED process. It is basically a determination if the education that you have completed internationally, including fieldwork, meets the eligibility requirements to apply for the OTR certification exam, even if we attended a world WFOT-recognized approved program. So this you know, process required us to complete a lot of documentation, have stuff prepared, sent out via a university. One of the forms that was the most time-taking was a bundle of 50 forms. Thank God they now do it online. This was physical forms that I had to fill back in the, back in the day. Asking us to give us details and proof on each coursework and standards and how they were met. So it was really detailed. These questions were so detailed. And one of the first questions I remember so clearly was asking me how I learned English in whatever form. There was a question about how I, my proficiency in English and how I've learned it or whatever, and to prove it. Wow. Given that my schooling was in English, it was hard for me to digest. And given that all of us were required to take and pass the TOEFL exam, which is the test of English as a foreign language proficiency exam, any which ways, as a prerequisite for the OTD process. I just felt like this was, why are you asking me this now? Like, have I not proved to you by taking a test that English is a language I speak or I know? You had to do both. You couldn't just say, Mm -hmm. yes, I know English and here's my background or let me take the test. You had to say, here's how I learned English. Oh, and now I'm going to take a test on it to prove that I know English. 
Yes. So can you imagine for me having, <laughs> I had to literally, I was like, how do I prove I know English? My, my, <laughs> my education from pre-K was English. Like what? Do I give you a certificate? Like, where do I even go to Here's ask my... <laughs> somebody to prove that I have been educated? I mean, English, right? Like, in my head, I like if I read that question, if I was in a similar spot, I can only imagine me just saying, hey, mom, go get that preschool work sample that I did when I was four years old. It's all in English. And let's send that to them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I understand some countries do have, you know, yeah. their primary education is in a different language, but you're making them do TOEFL. Why then are you asking them a question like that that can be perceived? I completely get where they're coming from, but it could be perceived as a bias. Right. Yeah. Like, why are you adding that layer there? We already have enough to unpack. We already have enough to do. And I mean, if anything, I hope, you know, this serves as a reminder for anybody listening and needs to hear this today to that our only limitations are the ones we set in our own minds. The process has never been easy for me, but I kept going. This made me resilient and taught me perseverance. And there was no stopping. Yeah. Wow. And to be straight up honest, the OT world is lucky to have you in the OT world. So I am glad you continued on and, and made it all the way through. Thank you. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> so we're going to actually continue on a little bit more because that is just part of the story, I think. Um, so you moved here or you were going through that process. You had to kind of prove that you had training in OT. Um, you had to prove that you spoke English in multiple ways. Um, was there additional training that you needed specifically for occupational therapy? So I was lucky enough to be around one of the last batches. I think in 2012, they moved from, if I was, because I had completed my OTED process before 2012, I was allowed to sit the exam without a master's. For anybody listening and who's not aware, one needs to now have a master's to be eligible to sit the exam. But I was anyways enrolled in a post-professional master's program at San Jose State University because that, that was part of my plan. I wanted to pursue my master's all along. So that didn't change anything for me. Okay. So, but now if someone were in a similar situation, they would have to do that post-pro master's? So they would have to do, yeah, they would have to do a post-professional master's or a doctorate because it's become entry-level master's now. So anybody who wants to sit the exam, whether you be, you know, you're trained in the United States or internationally, you have to have a entry-level master's or a post-professional master's. Master's is the minimum requirement. Gotcha. And can a master's from, say, India or from another country, that would still suffice? That would suffice. You would still go through the OTD process and I would think that you would have more questions to answer and more <laughs> things to prove, but it would suffice. I mean, even for me, I was, a, you know, OTED, like the process was I submit everything and they get back to me and ask me questions like, this isn't clear. How did you really master this? Or these standards seem like they've not really been met through your education at the level at which we require them to be have met. So I did do certain courses. I, you know, I did certain courses on occupationaltherapy.com, like IEP process and mm -hmm. stuff. They have questions about education and we don't have that in India. So not, you know, my OT education did not teach me about this process, even physical adjunct modalities. I remember we needed seven, 10, I, I forget how many hours, but I, and I knew that because I started this whole process 
when I got engaged to my husband a year before I even moved to the country. So I started the process. I started doing all the continuing education in addition that I knew I was going to have to be, you know, that were going to come up. Uh-huh. And I started working on all of that. The whole process of getting my OTD approval took me two years. Wow. And then prepared for my NBCOT and sat the NBCOT. Wow. And so what was the NBCOT experience for you like then? And did you do that before you got your post-pro or after you got your post-pro master's? Parallel. Okay. Yeah. So I... I was, I was enrolled in my post-professional master's, doing my course and preparing for the NBCOT and appeared the NBCOT at the same time. Okay. So that, that master's kind of helped you prepare for the NBCOT as well as a master's, post-pro master's can. Maybe, but I think it was actually very different because NBCOT has so much focus on what you would do in a particular situation, more clinical. Uh-huh. Whereas my master's was more management teaching and, you know, that focus was not as clinical. So I think NBCOT was all about just reading up, you know, the typical therapy ed books, you know, taking courses, you know, all of that. Like just there is there wasn't a community when I was going through it for people who, you know, were internationally educated, going through this entire Uh process. And obviously me being me, I saw a gap and I'm like. I didn't have the support. I'm done with it. I will make sure I get the support and pay yeah. it forward for anybody who's now going through it. So I do have a Facebook group. It's a small but mighty self-sufficient community of internationally educated OTs who are trying to get through the OTD process and give the votes. And what's the name of that one for anyone looking? It's called OT Help for International Educated OTs. And, you know, we can link it up at the end of the yeah, show. Definitely. All right. Wow. So that is quite an experience. Believe it or not, actually, in fact, I just had someone reach out to me the other day. We get like 5% of the listens that come from this show come from Europe, Australia, and China or, or Asia region, region. So for anyone listening, thank you so much for listening. First of all, for anyone outside of the States, it's, it's a blessing to have you joining us. Um, what would be that first step recommendation that you would give for someone listening? looking to move to the U.S.? It can definitely feel like a never-ending process with a huge investment in terms of time and money. You know, I've, I've heard many people in U.S. say it is expensive. Can you imagine how expensive it could be perceived for somebody who's an international applicant? But it is worth every minute and every penny in the end. I will add one more thing. Seek support from others who have undergone this process. It will save you a lot of time and headache instead of reinventing the wheel. I know I had to do that, and I don't wish that anybody else would have to. So reach out to somebody who's gone through the process. Well said. And again, we'll make sure to link to your Facebook group in the show notes. So check that out. All right. Let's talk about school-based occupational therapy. You're here. You are licensed. You can work. Thank God you're not a volunteer. You're actually getting paid for your work now. How do you feel all of your experiences as an internationally trained OT impacted your current skills and preferences as a school-based OT? I feel like the OT foundational skills are so ingrained in me. And the clinical exposure and hands-on approach from day one of OT school have really helped me solidify my clinical reasoning skills. I remember activity analysis was given so much importance 
And we often used a bottom-up approach, which taught me to really dig deeper, to analyze, understand why, and then problem-solve to support. Being an internationally educated OT, living and working in a different country made me also culturally more aware and more sensitive, partly due to the exposure, but largely due to my own lived experiences. I learned to view myself in a supporting role, give emphasis to a team approach with the parent as the expert of the child and the natural environment as a solid foundation. And I give all of that regard to being internationally educated and having moved another country to work. It, it just opens your eyes up to so many new and different things. Yeah. And I think as an occupational therapist, understanding, you know, we never truly understand the culture of other people. Like we don't live in their house. We don't live in their community. We don't know that. But being aware of that and being aware that other cultures exist and that other people live differently than we do is just so important. And so you have value. Yes. Yeah. They value something completely different. It might be so different and you are no one to judge if that is right or wrong. Same like a parent knows what's best for their child. You are no one to judge whether that's the right way or the wrong way. You can guide them. You can support them, but it is their way and their culture, their values, their habits, their routines will determine what they find meaning in, right? Yeah. And I think you'll agree with this too, but each classroom has its own culture as well. And so you said something very important. You said taking on kind of a supplementary role is what you learned or what you realized. And that in itself is difficult. (laughs) Um, Seeing yourself as supplemental to a classroom and knowing that that teacher is the leader in that, in that they're the president of their classroom. And absolutely. Yeah. And so I don't know if you want to add anything to that, um, just about, you know, being supplemental to the classroom. No, I think you absolutely nailed it. We, you know, look at yourself as a resource, as a support for the teachers you serve, for the schools you serve, for the district you serve. Think outside the box. You know, you don't have to be the main hero of the film. You can be a supporting role and still add so much value. That is a quote to remember right there. <laughs> you can be the supporting <laughs> character and still add value. I like it. All right. Um, we're, we're getting down to the last few questions, but we're going to stay on that school-based OT um, realm. What do you feel are some of the most or maybe the most important skill for a school-based OT to acquire and build upon to be successful? Of course, I think um, knowledge, which is very specific to the school system, like the laws that govern school-based practice, the IP process, scope of practice, all of that is very important. I also think it's very important to set a solid process for referral and moving on to discontinuation of services. The whole thing, like how, why would somebody go there? Why would somebody get services or not? Why would they get consult versus direct, right? You're really trying to get into the nitty-gritty of those things. Striving to be a resource for the schools you serve through an RTI approach, not only the kids on the IEP is another thing that is often overlooked. And having a robust workload management system to help with keeping track of multiple moving pieces. As school-based OTs, we know we have a referral coming in, we have an IEP due, some other teacher has given, you know, the pre-referral form, we have a screening done. 
an assessment is we have a lot of moving pieces and that is just for one site. Can you imagine having that for multiple sites, yeah. right? Um, so moving and looking at it from a workload perspective instead of a caseload perspective would be another great skill or another great quality to imbibe as a school-based OP. You know, I think you just basically wrapped up the final two questions that I had really, you know, just kind of what is um, some advice to a school-based occupational therapist, whether they're internationally trained or trained here in the United States? I don't know. Do you have one piece of advice based upon what you just said that they should work on? Yeah, I think um, first and foremost thing is make use of the privilege of being able to see the child in the natural environment. If you look closely, it gives you so much more information that is often missed when the child is seen out of context. So that's number one. All right. I actually have two more. Go for it. I'm uh, all ears. <laughs> and that would be collaborate with your IEP team. They bring so much expertise to the table, which is instrumental in our decision and next steps. You, you know, going back to what we spoke about earlier. Yeah. And the last would be Remember that in addition to remediation, we as OTs are also experts in modifying the environment, adapting the activity so that the child can be more successful. Don't forget to explore your full potential. Absolutely. Well, Ushma, this has been so much fun. My neck is actually starting to hurt from nodding with you. Like everything you're saying, I'm just nodding. I know you all can't see that out there listening, but I'm just like, nodding this entire conversation. So I really do appreciate it. And I want to give you the opportunity to um, share where anyone interested in learning more about you, more about the world of OT, where can they go? Absolutely. So for anybody who's new to school-based OT or interested in the school-based OT course, you could visit worldofot-school.thinkfake.com. Or the short version of that is bit.ly slash school OT. School is all lowercase and OT is capital. You could follow me on Instagram and my handle is world of OT. Or you can connect with me on Facebook. I'm Ushma Ashar Sampat. Or visit my website and you can you know, probably get all the information you need about me and my practice. www.worldofot.com All right. And we'll be sure to link to all of those in the show notes so you can get easy access to them. So, Ushma, thank you so much for coming on here. Really appreciate it. Like I said, I've been nodding this entire time uh, just because everything that you're saying just aligns so much with the values that I share as a school-based occupational therapist. Uh, thank you so much for sharing just about how different the culture is and what we can learn from it. Um, you know, it, it's important to understand the differences, but you got to go further and, and understand what we can learn from that. So thank you so much. Um, really appreciate you coming on. Absolutely. This was so much fun. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. We'll have to do it again on another topic in the future. It'll be great. Done. I'm in. <laughs> All right. Well, take care. Enjoy the rest of your day and uh, we'll see you sometime in the future. That sounds good. Take care. Bye-bye. One last time, thank you so much to Ushma for coming on to the podcast. It was such a pleasure to have her on. And thank you, you, for listening today. This was such a great episode. I cannot agree more with everything that Ushma was saying. And I hope you had a chance to learn from this conversation today. It really was a great conversation. And I look forward to more in the future. So with that, until next time, I will see you later. Take care. Bye-bye. 
Thank you for listening to the OT Schoolhouse podcast. For more ways to help you and your students succeed right now, head on over to otschoolhouse.com. Until next time, class is dismissed.